You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. Welcome to episode 88 of the GDPR Weekly Show. And coming up in this week's episode, we have an ICO opinion on the Google Apple contact tracing app for COVID-19 virus sufferers. We then have news on COVID-19 data handling update from the EU Data Commissioner. We then have a look at transfer adequacy decisions for coronavirus and other EU data to Israel and South Korea, given the contact tracing apps which both Israel and South Korea are now using as part of the coronavirus operations in those countries. We then move away from coronavirus and have a look at some data breaches which have been reported this week, the first of which involves a hardware store in the UK, Robert Dias, which has suffered a serious customer credit card data breach, which could have potentially financial implications for customers who shopped on the online website of Robert Dias during March 2020. We then have a look at a data breach at Nintendo. We then have news of a data breach affecting the French fitness app KinoMap. And we then have news of a data breach within the Coronavirus Small Business Grant Scheme in the states of Guernsey. And then finally this week we have news that Iron Man caused a potential data breach in the Strava fitness app. So as always quite a wide mix of stories for you this week. We've been covering the coronavirus now since episode 82. So if you have any questions or queries about GDPR and the coronavirus I suggest you listen back to the previous episodes from episode 82 onwards and if you still have queries after that anything we've not answered then please do send us an email to corona at insurety.co.uk that's e-n-s-u-r-e-t-y.co.uk and we will do our best to answer your query and include it in a future episode of the gdpr weekly show if you have any general feedback about the show, then please, as always, send that to podcasts at insurety.co.uk and please be sure we do read all the feedback that we receive and wherever possible we action it into future episodes of the show. Unfortunately, due to the volume of feedback that we receive, we don't have the opportunity to respond to feedback messages personally. Regular listeners to the show might notice a couple of new jingles during the show this week. We're very pleased to be able to work with Music Radio Creative who provide our jingles for us and if you have jingle requirements for your own podcast or indeed for any other publicity that you're doing then please do contact the guys at Music Radio Creative. We can't praise them highly enough and you can access them directly via a shortcut which we've put together for you which is HTTP colon slash slash SDU S for sugar D for donkey U for unicorn dot ME mother echo slash D uppercase 
S. So that's D for donkey, S for sugar, and the S in uppercase. Your coronavirus roundup from the GDPR Weekly Show. If you're a regular listener to the GDPR Weekly Show, you might remember that back in episode 85 and in episode 87, it's last week's episode, we mentioned about a new contract tracing app for people with COVID ID 19 which was being developed by Apple and Google. Well, during the course of this week, the ICO have released their opinion on the proposal from uh, Google and Apple. And their conclusion basically is that they think that the app, which is referring to the contact tracing framework, the CTF, to enable the use of Bluetooth technology to help governments and public health authorities reduce the spread of the COVID ID-19 virus, And their summary is that the proposals for the contact tracing framework appear aligned with the principles of data protection by design and by default, which is, of course, one of the key principles of GDPR. They've also gone on to mention data minimization, and they've said it's important, and Google and Apple have both recognised that it's important, that the exchange of information between devices does not include personal data, such as account information or usernames that matching processes take place on device, so i.e. on the person's mobile device, and are not undertaken by the app host or with the involvement of any other third party or any third party hosting or, or server. The information required for the core functionality of contact tracing apps built using CTF does not use location data, either in the exchange between devices, the upload to the app host, or subsequent notifications to other users from the app host. So what that means in reality is that if this new app functions as expected and if take up is high enough then if you whilst you're out and about you've come into contact with someone who has COVID-19 the app will tell you and so you then need to self-isolate for a period of seven days but it won't tell you where you came into contact with that person and I think the logic behind that is so that because if it did tell you where you came in contact with the person of course it might well be that you could then identify who the person was and the app doesn't want to let you do that so it won't tell you that today whilst you were in the queue of Tesco's you were standing next to somebody who had COVID-19 what it will tell you is that sometime today whilst you were out you stood next to someone who had COVID-19 but obviously what it will do is it will have told everyone within range of that person, whilst they were in the queue at Tesco's, if that's where it was, that they had been exposed to someone with COVID-19. In terms of security, the ICO says that under the CTF, the exchange of information between devices and the upload of information to the app host incorporate a number of security measures, including using cryptographic functions with additional safeguards. And they give some examples, which are that the generation of tokens takes place on the person's mobile device and is not under control of the app by utilising the API using cryptographic techniques to ensure that information broadcast to other devices is not directly relatable to an identifiable individual, i.e. the data that's transferred doesn't contain your mobile number or your username or any other such details. It's also saying it's important that the exchange of tokens between devices does not indicate COVID-19 status. While there may be circumstances where an individual could determine the identity of a diagnosed user, i.e. if you've been out and you only bumped into one person whilst you were out, 
these measures address the risk without identif- about identification in circumstances such as public spaces. If a user is diagnosed, they can voluntarily upload the stored tokens on their device to the app host, which will normally be the public health authority, via an encrypted communications channel. And it's not quite clear at the moment how that's going to work, but that's something that both Apple and Google are developing. While looking up the tokens of COVID-19 positive users is possible, that is only true for a technically advanced attacker under specific circumstances, meaning that the risk to an individual is regarded to be low. The second stage transfer of data to the app host is likely to be undertaken via Transport Layer Security, TLS. It's a fairly industry standard. No persistent user ID is broadcast. Instead, a sequence of pseudo-random tokens representing changes user IDs are broadcast. And again, the idea here is that someone can't identify the individual involved. What the ICO has also said is that third-party app developers may also develop functionality that involves collection of additional data or new uses of the existing data. This risks expanding the use of CTF enabled apps beyond the stated purpose of contact tracing. And in this case, the ICO says it will monitor all developments with an eye to ensuring that the purpose does not expand outward in the phenomenon known as feature creep. But there are some contract tracing apps using the CTF. And the principle behind these is that the processing of additional data by apps that use the CTF may be legitimate and permissible. For example, it may be needed to support the public health utility of a tracing app. And in such cases, the ICO says that it would need to assess the um, case on a case-by-case basis. Organisations designing contact tracing apps are responsible for ensuring the app complies with GDPR, where it processes personal data and the organisations are the controllers of that data. The primary responsibility for providing privacy information rests with the app developer, including organisations that outsource the actual app design to a third party and app stores that make apps available to users, particularly where app developers are also controllers. So, i.e. Google and Apple would need to take care on how they make this app available via the um, Apple Store or the Google Play Store. The data protection by design and by default principles used in the development of the CTF do not necessarily extend to all aspects of a contact tracing app that is built to use the CTF, the ICO says. The ICO also goes on to say that if the app processes data outside the CTF's intended scope, then the controller should ensure it assess the data protection implications of this processing, along with any undertaken by way of the CTF, and ensures that the processing is fair and lawful. It is also crucial that the processing is transparent. This may involve a separate data protection impact assessment, DPIA, if the threshold criteria are met. Our view is that in most cases those criteria would be met and a separate DPIA would be required. In terms of transparency, the ICO says that while Google and Apple's app stores mandate specific requirements for the privacy information that apps must provide, it is currently unclear whether this would mean contact tracing apps utilising the CTF must include information relating to the CDF. The responsibility cannot solely be placed on the user and the apps must clarify to the user who is responsible for the processing. And the use of the CTF by apps must be documented and, crucially, it must be auditable. In terms of legal basis, the ICO says that they understand that the most current proposals for contact tracing apps would rely on consent as a lawful basis for processing any personal data and that installation of the apps would be voluntary. I think that has to be the case. I can't see, whilst they may wish that they could, I can't see any way that the government could actually make installation of the app mandatory. There are still some questions, the ICO says, particularly how will the CTF facilitate the collection of consent for the upload of stored tokens to the app host? 
How an app utilising the CTF will manage the consent signal and how the CTF and an app may, between them, provide control to users. And what impact consent withdrawal may have both on the effectiveness of contact tracing solutions and any notifications provided to other app users once an individual has been diagnosed with COVID-19. In terms of security, the Commissioner is convinced that the apps are adopting robust security, including the use of encryption and covering each stage of data processing, data minimization, transparency and user control. Any supporting technology, including centralised processing to support contact tracing, should follow the same principles, the ICO says. The ICO concludes by saying that they are a reasonable and pragmatic regulator and they don't operate in isolation in this matter of serious public concern. Regarding compliance with GDPR, the Commissioner will take into account the compelling public interest in the current health emergency. It goes on to say that controllers should refer to the ICO's guidance on COVID-19 that reflects their position. So quite an in-depth view from the ICO there and it does look more and more likely that this app is going to appear and that the government will be urging people to install it on their smart devices. Once we actually have a chance to look at the app ourselves, we will, of course, feature that in a future episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. Stay home, stay safe. Again, if you're a regular listener, you will know that in the last few episodes we've covered some guidance from both the UK ICO and from the European Commissioners on GDPR and how that should affect the COVID-19 situation, both in terms of home working and also in terms of employees suffering from COVID-19. This week, the EU data protection authorities have issued some further guidance on three particular issues. The first is surveys, tests and reporting and their recommendation is that as general best practice, companies should avoid conducting systematic surveys for COVID-19 infections of employees or their relatives, contractors and visitors. Conducting mandatory temperature tests of these individuals similarly may be problematic from a proportionality perspective under GDPR, but mandatory temperature tests could be justified in limited individual cases if no other less intrusive measures are available. With respect to reporting, companies may encourage employees, contractors and visitors to voluntarily report travel to any high-risk areas, but companies should avoid issuing mandatory questionnaires regarding all recent travel. In terms of the identity of infected employees, this is something that we've mentioned a couple of times in the last few weeks, and it's come up in some questions from some of our listeners. The ruling is is that wherever possible you should avoid disclosing the name of infected employees to your other employees. However, it's recognised that there are situations where you may have to reveal the name because perhaps they're part of a small team. In these instances, it's now recognised that you can reveal the name of the employee who's contracted the virus, but you must inform that employee first that that is what you're intending to do. Now again, obviously this is a case of reasonable endeavours because if the employee is in hospital in intensive care, then it's probably unlikely you're going to be able to actually notify them. So in that case, you should perhaps seek to notify their next of kin, if you can, of the fact that you're going to release their name to the other employees of your company. 
And that brings us to the whole issue of employees' personal contact details, and it's recognised that in general the processing of employees' personal contact details, such as private mobile phone numbers and email addresses, is allowed to the extent necessary for the employer to communicate with the relevant employee for COVID-19 detection and prevention purposes. We would stress that although there is a certain level of consistency in COVID-19 related issues addressed by regulators across Europe, there are slight variations from country to country, so whilst the guidance we give is wholly centred on the UK, if you are in another EU country you should check with your local regulator, your local ICO, whether they have any additional requirements. Stay home, stay safe. One thing the coronavirus has brought into focus is the EU adequacy decisions for data transfers. The coronavirus crisis has given rise to numerous initiatives by governments around the world to combat the COVID-19 pandemic by gathering, sharing and transferring data, which is both personal data and anonymised. A great deal of attention has been given to proposals for increased data gathering within the EU, and many statements have been issued about them by European institutions, data protection authorities and indeed academics. However, less attention has been given to the protection that personal data transferred from the EU receives in countries that have adopted such measures. These measures raise questions both about respect for the rights of privacy and data protection within the EU and about the protection that personal data transferred from the EU receive in third countries that have been found to provide adequate protection based on EU standards, GDPR, which is the subject of this article. To put this into context, under Article 45 of the GDPR regulations, the European Commission may issue a decision that a third country ensures an adequate level of data protection, which was also possible under Article 25 of the EU Data Protection Directive 95-46, which is what preceded GDPR across the EU. Since adequacy decisions allow for an unimpeded flow of personal data from the EU to the third country involved, they may only be issued when the legal system of such an entity guarantees a standard of protection that is essentially equivalent to that under EU law, which is Recital 104 of GDPR. Now, two countries which have satisfied their adequacy ruling are Israel and South Korea. And Israel and South Korea are also two countries which have adopted aggressive testing and data collection against COVID-19. And so there is some question about how much of that data can be transferred either to the EU or outside, or from the EU outside to Israel and indeed to South Korea. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu stated in mid-March that he had been allowed by the Justice Ministry to use intelligence tracking tools to digitally monitor coronavirus patients without their consent. Other reports state that the Israeli government has approved the use of new technologies to retrace the movements of coronavirus patients and people with whom they have been in contact. South Korea, of course, has been recognised as a exemplar across the world, really, for the way to potentially handle a coronavirus outbreak and keep it strictly under control. And though there are reports that from South Korea that it's now not only using smartphone data, but is also harnessing surveillance camera footage, CCTV, and indeed credit card purchase records to help trace the movements of coronavirus patients and therefore establish possible transmission chains to third parties. 
Without meaning to take a position on the level of protection offered by specific measures taken in any third country, these developments raise questions as to their effect, if any, on existing or potential EU adequacy decisions. One might ask whether EU data protection standards are relevant to data gathering measures taken in third countries to combat the coronavirus. After all, it is a health emergency a pandemic across the world. A European Commission spokesman, when asked about Israel, said, To our knowledge, the measures involve the collection of location data of persons in Israel from telecom operators. This would therefore not concern data transfers in Europe, covered by the Commission's adequacy finding for Israel. However, measures taken in third countries to expand the processing of data for the purpose of combating coronavirus may indeed have implications under GDPR. Because under Article 45.2a of GDPR, when assessing the adequacy of the level of protection in a third country, the EU Commission must take account of, amongst other things, and I quote, the rule of law, respect for human rights and fundamental freedoms, relevant legislation, both general and sectoral, including concerning public security, defence, national security and criminal law, and the access of public authorities to personal data, as well as the implementation of such legislation. What this means in reality is that an adequacy decision requires a holistic assessment of the legal system of a third country that goes beyond the examination of just its data protection legislation and may include evaluating data gathering and data sharing techniques in an area such as combating pandemics. Adequacy must also be reassessed as part of a periodic review by the Commission as circumstances change and this is detailed in Article 46.3 of GDPR. As a result, the measures that a third country takes with regard to data sharing and data collection are not solely a matter for its own law, at least to the extent from that it wants to benefit from an EU adequacy decision. Indeed, it's an argument to say that such measures must form an integral part of the EU's assessment, both initially and on a continuing basis, as to whether equivalence with EU law still exists. And indeed, EU adequacy decisions reflect this requirement. Paragraph 3 of the Commission's decision about Israel states that adequate protection must be assessed in the light of factors listed in Article 25 of GDPR, which amongst others, the article, the nature of the data, the purpose and duration of data processing operations and legal rules enforced in the third country. And Article 3.1 of the decision also states that the data protection authorities in the EU may suspend data flows when, and I quote, there is a substantial likelihood that the standards of protection are being infringed. There are reasonable grounds for believing that the competent Israeli authority is not taking or will not take adequate and timely steps to settle the case at issue. The continuing transfer would create an imminent risk of grave harm to data subjects. And the competent authorities in the member state have made reasonable efforts in the circumstances to provide the party responsible for processing established in the state of Israel with notice and opportunity to respond. Now it could be argued that EU standards should not apply unless it can be proved that data processing in the third country involves data transfer from the EU, since the protection of data transfers is the whole purpose of the adequacy decision. However, this contention is undercut by the 2003 judgment of the Court of Justice of the EU in the case that raised the question of whether putting personal data on an internet page was covered by the directive. In that case, the court held that the directive was applicable even in cases where there was no actual link with free movement between the member states, because it would not be appropriate to determine in each individual case whether the specific activity at issue directly affected freedom of movement. So the same rationale would seem to apply to data transfer rules under both the directive and GDPR. As the court affirmed in its 2015 judgment, 
the DPAs and national courts should have broad powers to examine the compatibility of commission adequacy decisions with the rights and freedoms of individuals. GDPR creates a high standard for commission adequacy decisions, which would surely be undermined if potential violation of the rule of law and the fundamental rights in third countries was found in an internal ma- to be an internal matter. Thus, the relevant considerations with regard to adequacy decisions are not whether third country measures involve data transfers from the EU, but rather what is the level of data protection in the third country and what are the impact of such measures on data subjects. And of course, this is all brought into relevance now that there are this scope for creating similar apps here in the UK, which is what we tabled in our first article this week. But this doesn't mean that the gathering and processing of data to combat coronavirus by third countries benefiting from an EU adequacy decision must necessarily result in the limitation and suspension of data transfers to them. Adequacy is judged based on essential equivalence with EU law, and EU data protection law allows considerable leeway for data transfers that are necessary for important reasons of public interest or to protect the vital interests of data subjects or other persons. And that, of course, could well be argued to be the case here with the COVID-19 pandemic. For example, recital 46 of GDPR states that some types of processing may serve both important grounds of public interest and the right of interest of the data subject, as for instance when processing is necessary for humanitarian purposes, including for monitoring epidemics and their spread or in situations of humanitarian emergency, in particular in situations of natural and man-made disasters. This flexibility was reaffirmed by the European Data Protection Board in a statement adopted on 19th of March 2020. It does mean that the data collection and processing measures taken in third countries to combat the coronavirus are relevant to an evaluation of the continued validity of existing adequacy decisions and the potential conclusion of new ones. This is important not only to ensure that data transfers from the EU receive adequate protection, but also require data collection and processing measures in the EU itself to meet applicable data protection standards. Dismissing any initiatives in third parties as purely internal matters for those countries could take pressure off the EU and member states to adhere to data protection and fundamental rights standards in the measures that they themselves have already adopted or are considering. Within the EU, Articles 7 and 8 of the EU Charter of Fundamental Rights govern secondary EU law and national law falling within the scope of EU law, such as legislation restricting rights under GDPR and the e-privacy directive. The case law of CJEU in this respect has previously applied the principles of necessity and proportionality, which will have to be respected by the EU legislator and by member states when providing for surveillance, in particular of mobile phone users. The standards that the EU law requires in this regard have been summarised as follows by the EDPB and the European Data Protection Supervisor, EDPS. Lawfulness of processing, transparency, proportionality, effective data and anonymisation, data security, limitations on data access and deletion of data when the emergency has come to an end. In a nutshell, everything that we covered in the first article this week. If properly implemented, they can even facilitate the use of data processing to fight the pandemic and help ensure that data gathering and processing are invoked not as an action by politicians but as fully effective evidence-based scientific measures. Observing the basic principles of data protection will also help ensure buy-in from private individuals, from citizens, and prevent public backlash against data gathering and processing measures. And that's very important, and I think that's something which the government needs to get over to the public in the UK when it comes to widespread take-up of this app, because bear in mind that the app is only going to be any use if 
a wide proportion of the population actually pick it up and use it, is making sure that the public accept the reassurance that the data is only being used for the COVID-19 pandemic and once that's over, all that data will be destroyed. And I think that's really, really important if the government is to stand any chance of getting the take-up of the app, which it's hoping to get. This is something which is likely to run on in the coming weeks, and so no doubt we will come back to it in future episodes of the GDPR Weekly Show. And now, the rest of this week's news. UK hardware store Robert Dias has revealed that card-skimming malware on its e-commerce website has led to the theft of consumer financial data. It's been reported that for 23 days, starting on March the 7th and ending on March the 30th, a card skimmer was operational on the Robert Dias website, according to an email sent to customers by Robert Dias. For those outside the UK who may not be aware of Robert Dias, Robert Dias are a hardware store who provide DIY and home improvement products, gardening tools and electricals. Customers that ordered from Robert Dias through the company's website between March the 7th and March the 30th may have had their payment details stolen, including card numbers, expiry dates and CVV security codes, the three digits on the back of your card. In addition, customer names and addresses may have been taken. The implementation of a card stimming malware and payment portal hijacking are now commonly known as MageStart attack. A website vulnerability is exploited and JavaScript stimming code is then appended to legitimate scripts found in the payment area of the website. Previous victims of card stimmers have included British Airways and Ticketmaster. Robert Dias became aware of the intrusion on March the 30th and removed the malicious code straight away. In a statement, Robert Dias said that they believed up to 20,000 customers may have been affected by the security incident. The damage has been heightened by increased sales of home improvement products caused by the UK's coronavirus lockdown and stay-at-home orders. Specifically, the hardware store has been in the midst of a massive online sales boost, ultimately leading to the imposition of an online minimum spend of £50. A Robert Dyer spokesperson said, We are confident this issue has been fully resolved and the website has been safe for use since March 31st, 2020. We are working with relevant authorities in response to the incident of an appointed a payment card industry forensic investigator to carry out an independent investigation. We are deeply sorry for the concern and inconvenience this illegal activity has caused some of our customers. Robert Dias said that the firm's payment provider who manages the sales has been notified alongside banks and other associated financial services. They said they'd also informed the UK's Information Commissioner's Office, the ICO, and if the Data Protection Watchdog finds fault with Robert Dias' security, they recognise that a fine under GDPR could be imposed. We've not yet had a statement from the ICO on this Robert Dias data breach, but we would expect to get one in the next week, 10 days. And when we do receive one, we will, of course, bring it to you in a future episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. Nintendo users are being forced to change their passwords following a data breach that has affected 160,000 users. Through a security weakness involving the Nintendo Network ID login system, hackers were potentially able to gain access to player nicknames, dates of birth, countries and email addresses. It's possible that the third parties may have used the hack data to make unauthorised digital purchases at Nintendo's electronic stores. On its Japanese website on Friday, 
Nintendo announced that hackers were able to use login IDs and passwords obtained illegally to impersonate accounts via the Nintendo Network ID. The company confirmed that 160,000 accounts have been affected and that certain information may have been viewed by a third party. Nintendo also said that the registered credit cards or PayPal accounts for users who linked their NNIDs, their Nintendo Network IDs, with their Nintendo accounts may have been used illegally at the My Nintendo store or the Nintendo eShop. However, Nintendo were keen to stress that no credit card information was stolen. On Monday, many Nintendo users complained that their accounts had been hacked from locations around the world and that some of them had lost money as a result. The account takeovers apparently began around mid-March but hit a peak at the weekend. In response to the breach, Nintendo said that it would remove the ability of users to sign into a Nintendo account using the Nintendo Network ID. Designed as a login method for older Wii U and Nintendo 3DS devices, the Nintendo Network ID offered a way for users to link their old accounts to a Nintendo profile on newer devices. Hackers apparently took advantage of that process to break into a larger number of accounts. In a statement, Nintendo said it is notifying all affected users by email. The company is also resetting the passwords for all such accounts, so if you have an account using a Nintendo Network ID, you will be prompted to change your password the next time you sign into the Nintendo website. If you use the same password for other sites and accounts, Nintendo of course recommend that you should change those as well. If you don't receive an email or prompt to reset your password and you're still concerned, check your Nintendo account. Sign into your Nintendo account website at the user info screen, look at the section for linked accounts and see if the Nintendo network ID shows up as linked. If it's not, that's a good sign. But whether or not your account's been affected, you should still take certain security precautions. If you want to change your password at the Nintendo account page, you should click the option for sign in and security settings Click the edit button next to change password, enter your current password and click OK, type and then retype your new password and click submit. Nintendo does also offer now two-step verification and we'd always recommend using two-step verification where it's available, so this is probably a good time to turn it on if you're not currently using it on your Nintendo account. Because the data breach potentially compromised data that can be used against you or using identity theft, such as your location and date of birth, then be wary of phone calls, emails and notifications that may try to exploit these details. If we receive any update on this from Nintendo, we will of course bring it to you in a future episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. Millions of records belonging to users of the French fitness technology app KinoMap were exposed online for almost a month due to a misconfigured database. The information included a range of personal details. Approximately 40 gigabytes worth of information belonging to users of KinoMap was discovered by security researchers. KinoMap is a service that creates immersive workout videos for people on rowing and cycling machines as well as treadmills. This enormous amount of data amounted to 42 million records and affected the platform's entire user base, including people from a number of countries across the UK, Europe and the US. The data was discovered by VPN Mentor as part of a web mapping project on the 16th of March, with the public access to the database closed on the 12th of April. The data exposed included full names, email addresses, gender, timestamps for exercises, the date users joined Kino Map, as well as a great deal of personal data revealed indirectly. 
Many of the entries link to user profiles and records of account activity, which in a similar way to social media profiles, could potentially reveal a lot about individuals. If hackers had discovered a database, they could combine the information in numerous ways by devising fraud schemes and other forms of identity theft against victims. They could also have taken over user accounts on KinoMap. Many of the exposed entries, for instance, included access keys for KinoMap's API, which cybercriminals could then have used to gain full access to a user account and indeed potentially have locked the true users out of their system. By not having more robust data security in place, KinoMap made its users vulnerable to a wide range of fraud, said VPN Mentor. They went on to say that with millions of people across the globe now under quarantine at home due to coronavirus, the impact of a leak like this one grows exponentially. Unable to access their usual forms of exercise, many people will be turning to apps like KinoMap to stay fit and upbeat during the crisis. Hackers will be aware of this and looking for opportunities to exploit the increased user numbers on apps without adequate data security in place. It is of course worth bearing in mind that a data data this nature could seriously endanger the health and finances of KinoMap itself, given that people tend to be quite fickle in their use of apps. And also, of course, KinoMap may now find themselves facing severe repercussions as a result of the breach over potential GDPR violations as they are now being investigated by the French Information Commissioner's Office. Again, if we receive any update on this from either KinoMap or the French Information Commissioner's Office, we will, of course, bring it to you in a future episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. An investigation is underway on the island of Guernsey to establish whether a possible data breach has occurred with the state's grant scheme. An investigation has been started into whether the state has compromised bank account details while dealing with small business grants. One business has described receiving an email from the financial support department that rather than having their own information in, included bank details and statements and details of another person that had applied for one of the grants. State's Chief Executive Paul Whitfield said the states of Guernsey were now investigating the matter. I wouldn't get into obviously the detail and the specific individual case, but I would confirm that we've been made aware there has been a potential data breach, he said. Of course, as usual, we're making the initial inquiries and have reported the data breach. It's not desirable and we would apologise at any time if there has been such a breach. He went on to say, but with an organisation that handles so much data as the states of Guernsey and now working remotely as never before, We've got to be really cautious on how we're handling so much data and it would be fully investigated as if we would be operating normally. He added that he was confident it was not a widespread problem. Civil Contingency Authority Chairman Gavin St. Pierre acknowledged the seriousness of the matter. I think clearly the mishandling of anybody's data is always to be regretted, he said. But equally, as the Chief Executive of the Guernsey States has said, It has to be very much subject to the data protection law and working obviously with the data protection commissioner in relation to those kinds of cases. The grant is part of a scheme introduced at the end of March to deal with the coronavirus situation and the grant is open to all Guernsey businesses and the self-employed with fewer than 10 employees to receive £3,000 as additional support. Intended to last three months, it was designed to help smaller businesses on the island in whichever way they deem appropriate. Those who wanted to apply for the grant were first asked to email financial support at the States of Jersey and told someone would get back to them, in touch with them, for more details. So it may appear that this is just a one-off and let's hope that it is. 
um, if we receive any update from the states of Guernsey, we will of course bring it to you in a future episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. And finally this week, we have news that in early April, Iron Man launched a racing platform called the Iron Man Virtual Club that allowed amateur triathletes to continue competing against each other while social distancing rules prevented real events from being held. The platform allowed users to sync workouts from Strava, but as sports tech blogger DC Rainmaker explained, the developer broke Strava's API usage rules. Concerned about GDPR liability surrounding its users' data, and previously having given Ironman and its developer Sport Heroes 10 days to address the issue, Strava cut Ironman Virtual Club's access to its API last week. We are uncertain whether there actually has been a data breach in this case, as we are currently awaiting an update from Strava as we go to press. But if we get an update on this during the coming week, we will of course bring it to you in next week's episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. So that brings us to the end of this week's episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. I hope you found it useful. I hope you found it entertaining. Please do let me know. Let me have your feedback by sending an email to podcast.insurity.co.uk. You can find out more about us and Insurity at www.insurity.co.uk. And I look forward to speaking to you again, same time, same place, next week. Have a good week, everybody, and remember to keep your data safe. Thanks for listening. The GDPR Weekly Show is an Insurity production. Follow us on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash insurity.